Welcome everybody. I am super excited to do a deep dive into user research. As you well know, user research is such a critical part of the whole product-led movement. Regardless of whether you're going from sales-led to product-led or you're product-led right now, you can't be product-led if you're not first customer-led. And that's where I have Allison here today. She is head of user research at Userly. She's been doing user research for 15 years at companies like Etsy, Yale School of Management. So I got the best of the best in terms of expert for user research. Before we go on, I am super excited to announce the last cohort of the product-led growth certificate program that's happening for 2021. Now, master product-led growth this November. This four-week live cohort program will show you exactly how to build a software that sells itself. We'll be going through some actionable frameworks that just works and will really help you accelerate the growth of your company. Through the program, you'll have opportunities to connect with high-caliber peers so you don't have to go through the product-led journey on your own. You'll be able to meet with experts who can really answer the toughest question you have about product-led growth. If you're ready to become a product-led growth certified professional, apply now at productled.com. Now, enrollment closes on Monday, October 25th, 2021. So hurry, apply now. The seats are first come, first serve. I'll see you there. Allison, how are things with you? Good. It's nice to be here with you today. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to jump right in. I mean, first of all, one thing I just boggles my mind. I've read stats from course schedule that 65% of marketing and product teams don't actually talk to their customers at all. Before we get into like the nitty-gritty details, why is this so important? Like I, I, you and I know it, but like there's some people tuning in. We're like, ah, it takes so long. Why? Why should I even do it? What is your response to that? Yeah, I definitely heard that a lot myself, and I, I understand the desire to skip it because a lot of us are feel that we can easily kind of get into the heads of our own users or anticipate what they're going to want and need. But the reality is, we're kind of working at a company making the product that users are using. And even if we are users of the product ourselves, we don't experience all possible use cases, all possible environments where people are using the product or the situations that they're encountering. And so you're missing a lot if you're just relying on your own intuition. So doing user research can seem daunting at first. Um, There are more and less labor-intensive ways to do it. But if you spend the time, you will... I guarantee you find unexpected things and insights that will take your product in new and better directions and help you, you know, provide just a better product and a better customer experience. Speaking on that, one other thing that you mentioned in a brief that you sent out to us is around improving website conversion. That's something that I mean, creating that experience, it eventually, hopefully, you're you're driving more. You know, that's at the heart of self-serve product like this, getting more users to become customers, use the product, yeah. experience it. How does iterative learning drive website conversions? Yeah, that's a great question. I think two of the most difficult areas to learn about or to get customer insights from are getting website conversions. So from marketing page to sign up, and then from sign up to onboarding or activation. Those are really, really, really critical phases in the user lifecycle, but they're also very difficult to get good insights from outside of just the hard data you're seeing, which is super valuable, but it doesn't tell you why users are doing what they're doing. It just tells you what they're doing. But the key to both of these phases is getting the insights in the moment, understanding what users think in the moment. And that's where iterative learning comes in. 
using in-product surveys where you intercept a user with just one or two quick questions that are highly relevant to what they're doing and help you understand what that user's context is, what they're expecting and what their experience is. You can learn a tremendous amount about their about your users just from a few quick questions at the right moment that will help you, you know, get access to people in context that otherwise you, you just can't get for user research. I love that. I think the context, contextual, you know, even in in person, when when you ask a question out of context, I don't know about you, but I'd be like, whoa, where did that come from? So I love how you're putting this in context. In terms of that in product surveys, one of the things that maybe some maybe it's just me, but I'll just sometimes I just like, oh my goodness. Just annoying. Just like it's like a little fly that yeah. you want to squat. What is the best way to use uh, in-app surveys so that it actually is once again more contextual and really gets more responses that is high quality for insights? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple of different things here. The first thing is asking users questions that are relevant to what they're doing in the moment. So think about what do you really want to learn? Where is the perfect right place in the experience to learn what it is that you need to know. So make sure you're targeting that survey right. And then ask a question that's that's really relevant to what the users are doing. So if you ask somebody a question about what they're doing right now or what they are trying to achieve, they're going to be a lot more likely to answer it than if you ask them, how likely are you to recommend this product, for example, or something that's kind of a very <laughs> widely seen question that does right. not feel personalized or customized or relevant to what I'm doing in the moment. And so you're going to get users more willing to engage. The other thing is when you write your questions, keep them short and to the point. It's important to be friendly. So you don't want to sound like a robot in your question wording, but you also just want to use short, simple words and as few as possible. So just kind of spend a little time on these questions and make sure you're getting them as streamlined as you can. And then the last thing I was going to say is to just make sure you're only serving as many users as you need. So you don't necessarily need to survey everybody who comes from the onboard, through the onboarding flow in order to learn what's going on with onboarding. You just need enough to feel confident in the results. And there are tools on the internet that will... A user really has one of them, the company I work for, that will tell you how many responses you need based on your user population to have confidence in the data. Um, you don't need to survey everybody. So you, don't, you, know, you can minimize the disruption to the experience that way. I love that. I think the, keeping it short, you're really trying to figure out like what kind of questions to ask. You start off there in the context as well. Like mm-hmm. I get it all the time, even downloading an app. Like I just got in and you're people, I get in a survey. What do you think right. about this? I haven't even used it yet. Exactly. <laughs> you could ask me exactly. right now. So you're going to get a low response rate or the mm-hmm. people that do respond are going to give you a poor rating, but that's not necessarily a reflection of their experience. It's a reflection of you asked the wrong question at the wrong time. Oh, that's so good. And that's mm-hmm. not the heart of anything related to customer experience, right? Right question, right anything, right time to the right exactly. person. And that's where I guess like, we'll get into segmentation, but where are you getting into response rate? What is, I'm sure you get this all the time and probably the answer is it depends. Is What is a good <laughs> response rate? And just maybe a ballpark and range so that if it's like, let's say 1% response rate, you can, you can be like, oh, uh, that's terrible. You need work. <laughs> what is a good response rate range? Yeah. So it does depend, but I will say, let's say, you know, kind of for a SaaS product or with signed in users. So you have a user who's using your product, you're likely to get a 30% response rate with um, in product surveys. Sometimes we have customers who have as high as a 90% response rate. 
Now, that is by no means the, the typical response rate, but it does happen. So just to show you, you can get amazing response rates. It really does vary a lot, though, by the type of user you have and the type of relationship you have with your user. So at 30%, it's pretty typical for a SaaS product, and that's much, much higher than you'll see for an email survey. One thing to note is you will see a lower response rate on a marketing site, for example, because users are less engaged at that point. So you know the data you get there is still good, but you have to potentially survey more users in order to get it. I love it. Thank you for, for sharing that. That's definitely a lot higher than email. Yes, <laughs> uh, just you got to worry about open rate as well uh-huh. as click-through rate. And then, yeah, so this one is just, is in-app. That's why I think that's the, yes. the power of in-product is that yes. you can get it in context and it's, it doesn't have to be buried in a bunch of other emails that you have with that. Yeah. And you can just ask one or two or three maybe quick questions and get a ton of insight. Whereas if you ask, you know, an email survey it might have 20, 30, 40, 50 questions, you're, you know, you're just not going to get as many people participating. Love that. I mean, in terms of, let's say, starting out, they've never, you somebody who's never, like there's a SaaS, let's say it's a SaaS business, a product, product mm-hmm. and they've never done an app. Where would you suggest they start and what kind of questions or even maybe segment of users that they should start off with that you're seeing more like high impact and low effort kind of in product yeah. service that can really make a big difference? Yeah. I mean, there's not necessarily one right place to start. When we work with customers, we just find out what are you focusing on as a business? What's your biggest challenge right now as a business? And let's start there. Um, what we often hear is that onboarding is a biggest challenge. So we have a lot of customers who start there. And what we typically will recommend is do, let's say for the onboarding experience, having one survey that is triggered to users after they complete whatever that onboarding or activation event is. So not necessarily just completing the signup flow, but once they've taken a step that signals they've really engaged. So for example, in the case of user loop, we might consider somebody activated once they've launched their first microsurvey. So once that happens, that's a great place to intercept users and ask, how was your experience getting started on our platform and what could have been better? You know, even though a lot of people wonder about what's happening with onboarding drop-off, they want to increase onboarding conversion and they only focus on the people who drop out. Now, I highly recommend sending a survey for people who don't drop out too. And you can do that in automated ways. For example, sending an automated email survey X number of days after someone signs up but does not complete onboarding. Uh, however, you're going to get a much lower response rate there. And you can still learn a tremendous amount from those that do complete because they probably still ran into some of those same issues. So that's generally a great place to get some initial insights. We often recommend on your first time, I recommend starting broad. So you might have a really strong hypothesis that this is the problem with your onboarding experience. But I would really recommend making that first survey just how was your onboarding experience overall? Or don't actually lose that word because believe it or not, onboarding is jargon and consumers don't necessarily think that way. So how was your experience getting started? And then you can surface, let users tell you what their issues were, and then you can dig in further from there. So start broad and then through this iterative approach, um, dig in further on those issues. Interesting. I love that. How was your experience getting started? Yeah, totally. Onboarding, even within the product world, is what it could mean many different things. I love getting started with. I love also that you suggest around get, starting off broad. I've had a suggestion, mm-hmm. like, for example, if you have no idea what your users are doing uh, in your app or their primary goal in the first place to segment your, your onboarding experience, is mm-hmm. to just ask an in product question. What are you trying to do today? (laughs) Is that something you've seen also work where like they're still very early on with a product and 
they're getting a ton of science, but they have no idea. They're still figuring out exactly product market fit. And uh, would, yeah. is that, would you suggest that? Yeah, those kinds of questions are extremely helpful either maybe on a marketing site before somebody has actually created an account or very early in the onboarding experience. Because you know these days, you can sign up for anything for free or many things for free. That doesn't necessarily mean when you sign up that you have all intention of using it. You might still be sizing this product up. So questions that are asking you, you know, what brought you here today? What are you, you know, what are you here to do today? Things like that can help you understand, you know, where are users in their journey and what are they trying to accomplish? And is your, you know, onboarding flow or sign up messaging accurately kind of targeting those goals? One thing to note is we do recommend, especially earlier in the funnel where people are a bit less engaged, to start with a closed-ended question rather than just starting with an open-ended, what are you here to do today? So in that case, you might want to make a multiple choice question with a few options and then give always give a something else or another specify so that they can provide more detail. I love that. You're right. You're totally right. I think anything to make it easier for folks, right? In the early on when they haven't fully committed, yeah. uh, getting them to type something, they're probably just going to be not even fill out at all or just yeah. say something like good or something like that. Yeah. Another interesting approach, like right after somebody signs up is to ask, you know, how well do you expect this product to meet your needs? Because you can get a sense there of, you know, if, let's say you ask at a one to five rating. If your score is really high there, then that's great. If it's not that high, then you can kind of work on boosting confidence uh, on sign up and getting people a little more confidence when they get there. But the other thing is you can follow up with an open-ended question and ask like, you know, what are your hesitations or concerns about the product? And you can service some really useful insights there about what specifically is holding people back or what's driving their, you know, lower levels of, of confidence. Interesting. I love that. In terms of, and this might, I want to say it might be, a, it depends. Is if you're doing a multiple choice, uh-huh. <laughs> how many options is, I like three or five just because it's odd, but that's my preference. But do you have any data that shows like, it's, if it's over seven, you're going to get a lower response rate or anything like that in terms of uh, multiple choice or just giving offering choices? Yeah. I mean, we usually recommend sticking to, you know, three or four actual choices and then add an other option on there. So for a total of four or five choices. Beyond that, it's just, I mean, the idea with for successful in-product surveys is to just ask users to think as little as possible, thinking they have to do, the lower your response rates will be. And, and so you'll be missing out on some useful information. So we usually try and recommend keep it to four or five. Keep them, you know, worded very clearly and simply, and that's pretty good. So good, you're totally right there. Yeah, you mentioned something earlier that I want to get into now around how many responses should you get before you decide on the conclusion of it? Because right. I'm guessing if it's well, you've only got ten responses and you make a you make a decision based on that, it's probably not suggested, so to speak, better than if you have more. So, how many responses is good? Uh, and once again, it probably depends on... on yeah. So again, it depends. If you are a company that has enough, you know, like a large pool of users, then, you know, I recommend, like I said, like I said earlier, there's like, you could Google a sample size calculator and you'll see something. Userleap actually is a built-in sample size calculator. So when you launch a survey in Userleap, it'll recommend the number that you need for that. And that's great. If you have a huge pool of users, then that's a great tool to say like, okay, we can stop here and know we have enough to make draw conclusions, but we, ha- we don't have to interview more people than we need to. 
if you do have, you know, if you're an early stage startup and you don't, or maybe some B2B companies and you don't have a huge supply of users, you know, you can kind of start to use your rule of thumb. First of all, that number that the sample size calculator will give you will be a little bit smaller, but you can also start to just draw directional conclusions. So, you know, one thing we see is that generally speaking in micro surveys, after you have 50 or so responses, you're unlikely to see major swings in the results. So unless you have, you know, the users that come to your site on Monday are totally different than the ones that come on Tuesday, or the users in the morning are totally different than the users in the afternoon. Those kinds of things can generate big changes. But other than that, after 50, you can start to see where things are going and consider it kind of directional, but you can start to see where things are going there. And so I think you should feel, you know, pretty comfortable if if you have a smaller user base, you know, working with smaller numbers. Makes a ton of sense. I mean, in terms of, so you made a conclusion. Usually, often what happens is, usually in teams that are siloed, is that that research or knowledge is siloed, usually in one, one team. It could be product or user research. Yeah. Do you have any suggestions on making sure that that insight is propagated throughout across the organization? Because an insight from the product team might be something that the sales or marketing team might find valuable in terms of honing in their product or messaging. So mm-hmm. like, do you have any tips around sharing the insights across organization? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's kind of like the million dollar question because it's just so difficult to do. But you know, I think for any research team or researcher, I mean, that's the biggest challenge is how to spread out the insights. And there's a couple of different ways of doing it, but it's really just take advantage of all the channels available to you to share the insights from your survey. So, you know, maybe, or your survey or your, even your user, qualitative user research, whatever you're doing to figure out what are one or two great insights, especially, you know, if you're using a tool like UserLeap or any, you know, other tools where you can capture quotes, you can find a great quote, you know, in the user's own words, those are really powerful and compelling and can say a lot can help people understand the underlying experience of users. And of course, it's great when you can also support that with more quantitative survey data as well. But, you know, share it in Slack channels. Try and, you know, present at the, the team meetings or the staff meetings or whatever it might be, having a page on the internal wiki. So there's, there's lots of things like that. You know, some of our customers that usually have, we have a Slack integration so that you can have a usually channel in your company Slack and then, you know, either share out a, a quote or a response to other channels or tag other people. And so that's a really great way to say, like, oh, this person needs to know about this. Let me show them this particular response. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. I want to start wrapping up. In terms of if you can give one or two pieces of advice to product leaders or product-led growth folks who are tuning in right now, mm-hmm. what would be that one piece of advice from continuous user research, anything that we've talked about so far or anything that we haven't talked about? What would be your parting advice to them? I think there's a couple of things. First is don't be too nervous to start, especially with something like in-product research. You could spin up surveys very quickly. It's not a huge time lift compared to some other user research methods. And don't be afraid to start. Like Even if you're not sure you've got it right, ask, put your survey out there, see what you get. And if you're not getting the insights you need, then just tweak the question. Like You can kind of work on it, iterate on your question, and figure it out as you go. So don't be too intimidated to start. Just start, I guess, is the one piece of advice. The other thing I think to think about when you're writing those survey questions is consider where your users are in the journey. So for example, somebody on your marketing site isn't necessarily there because they came to sign up today. 
So if you just ask them a question like, why aren't you signing up right now? You're maybe not capturing fully where their experience is. So start to ask some, think about, put yourself in the shoes of your user as much as you can when you're writing the questions you're going to ask them. Um, maybe start with something like you said earlier, what brought you here today? Um, or what are you looking to accomplish? And those kinds of questions, let your user tell you where they are um, rather than having you assume that they came with a certain specific purpose. And then secondly, just keep going, just keep trying. You, you know, you're never going to, things change fast. So even if you know your users today, you might not know them a month from now. And so just always, you know, always keep learning and keep focused on what's the next thing you need to know to build a better product for your users. I love it. Thank you so much, Allison. One final question. Where can people find out more about yourself? Are you on LinkedIn? As well as where can people find out more about usually if they're interested in launching more in product surveys? Yeah, I am on LinkedIn. Allison Dickens, my name. And I also, um, you know, will post periodically on the Userleap's blog. So you can follow Userleap on LinkedIn as well. Um, our website is userleap.com. And um, there's lots of resources there on our blog and elsewhere about how you can get started with in-product research, as well as, of course, a free account for you to try out on your own. Thank you so much, Allison. Really appreciate it. Thank you.